Hello, I'm Katie Bravo, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This episode's theme, Hot Mess. In our first piece, Marisol Chavez takes a deeper look at getting locked out in Home Alone. I knew I was not going to make it. I was going to be forced to act one way or another. I was nine years old, I was locked outside, and I needed to poop. (laughs) Urgently. I wasn't even at my own home. I was at my mom's boyfriend's house, Greg. No offense to any Gregs out there, but Greg is the perfect name for your mom's boyfriend in the late 80s. He looked like a total Greg, too. A big, paunchy belly, those 80s wire rim glasses, a weird, bristly mustache, and graying hair that was combed over to cover his growing bald spot. As you might be able to tell, I was not a huge fan. Part of why I didn't like Greg was, for the most part, my life had mostly been just me and my mom. I was an only child, and so all of her attention was focused on me and making me happy. This was the first time that there was someone encroaching on my little bubble of affection. My mom was my whole world. She was perfect and angelic until Greg came along. Now, instead of me and my mom, it was my mom and Greg with me on the outside looking in. I tried to hold back my complaints against this relationship. Maybe it wouldn't last. She had dated other men before Greg, and they all went away pretty quickly. Maybe Greg would too. He didn't. Soon their dates turned into whole weekends spent at his dumb house. Every trip there felt like a slow drive into the pit of despair for me. My mom was different during these weekends. Normally, my mom was very straight-laced due to growing up in a very religious and conservative family. But when we were at Greg's house, it was almost like she could feel the need to be just like everyone else in our family fall off of her, and she could relax a little. She could have a drink, which my teetotaling family would never approve of. She could finally feel some physical affection from a man eight years after her divorce. But remember, I was also raised in this conservative Christian family. I picked up on the rest of my family's feelings toward the secular world, and I ran with it hard. When I saw my mom drink for the first time, I'm surprised I didn't call our pastor on the spot. I saw my mom and Greg kiss, and I knew he was dragging her straight to hell with him. In order to save my mom from eternal damnation, I started desperately trying anything to keep us from going to Greg's house on the weekends. None of my attempts worked. I tried begging. I tried crying. I'm pretty sure I even developed a psychosomatic allergy to Greg's dogs. Even though I never had a problem with dogs before, I started breaking out in hives when when I spent any time at Greg's. It didn't make a difference. My mom would give me an allergy pill and my scheme was shut down. It was around this time that I started developing a food addiction. Up until then, I was a mostly active kid who may have eaten a few too many Happy Meals every once in a while. But now I was in full-on binge mode. I started hiding snacks to eat when no one was watching. My aunt even caught me once hiding in her kitchen, shoveling down a box of graham crackers. They didn't even taste that great. It was just a way to comfort myself somehow. It didn't help matters that Greg started poking fun of my growing chubby body. Yet another reason for me to hate Greg. 
One afternoon, during one of these weekends at Greg's, he and my mom had left the house to go have some time for themselves. And I was left at home alone with the dogs. So I did what any food-addicted nine-year-old would do. I raided the pantry. Maybe this would be the last straw that would cause him to break up with my mom. Like, one day he would open his pantry, discovered all of his expired candy canes were gone, and he would decide that he couldn't date my mom anymore. I wasn't too picky as I munched my way through his food. My only rule was I would eat anything as long as it had sugar in it. Chocolate that had turned white from crystallization, stale marshmallows, ancient and inedible astronaut ice cream. I shoved it all down. I then filled in any empty spaces by drinking pancake syrup direct from the bottle. <laughs> Stuffed to the gills and a little sugar high, I searched for something to occupy the rest of my uh, luxurious time alone. It was a nice Southern California afternoon, so I thought it might be cool if I took my worn copy of A Wrinkle in Time and read outside instead of in his stuffy house. Greg had a secluded front yard enclosed on all sides by tall shrubs, so it would be kind of like reading in my own secret garden. I stepped outside, I closed the door behind me, and I heard a click. I twisted the doorknob that was still in my hand. No luck. I was locked out of Greg's house. Oh well, I figured. Mom and Greg would be back soon, I assured myself. The calm attitude lasted about five minutes before it hit me. The mix of expired marshmallows, astronaut ice cream, and syrup started churning in my stomach. If it wasn't a sin to use a curse word, I would have used all of them. I knew what that bubbling feeling was. I was going to have to poop, and Greg did not have an outdoor toilet. I started panicking. I tried the door again. It hadn't magically unlocked itself in the time I was outside. I raced around the outside of the house to find that every possible entrance was sealed. I thought about my choices. I was going to go one way or another. But there was one option that would take care of business and be an act of defiance against my mom's relationship with Greg at the same time. I made sure that the coast was clear, dropped my shorts, and left a little pile of protest on his front patio. Once the act was done, I felt ashamed with myself instead of proud and defiant. When my mom and Greg got home, I blamed the innocent dogs who were locked out with me. Greg gave me the greasy eyeball, knowing full well that what was left on the porch most definitely did not come out of one of his dogs. But to his credit, he kept his mouth shut, and we all silently agreed that we would never bring this moment up again. In the end, the protest poop did not work. My mom and Greg ended up dating for a few more years, but when I was 11, I did something far more shameful than what I did on Greg's front porch that day. Throughout their entire relationship, I had been in my aunt's ear like a little mosquito, telling her every one of his faults and the sins that my mom was committing with him, like some sort of child narc. Finally, one night when we were at Greg's, I couldn't stand it anymore, and I called my aunt, begging her to take me away. She came over and had a confrontation with my mom, telling her how irresponsible she was by being in this sinful relationship. I remember sitting in the front seat of my aunt's van while my mom stood by the window, crying and asking me why I didn't want her to be happy. I stayed silent as my aunt pulled away. I didn't have an answer for her then, but I know now that I was being selfish. That day, I forced my mom to make a decision between me and her happiness with Greg, and she chose me. My mom hasn't dated anyone since, probably because she never wanted to make that decision again. 
Once Greg was out of the picture, it was just me and my mom again, just like I had wanted. But as time moved on, our tight rubber band of a bond has stretched out. We aren't as close as we used to be. We barely talk anymore, and when we do, it's usually a random text from her about work or her dogs that I forget to respond to 50% of the time. Now my mom is the one on the outside, trying to find any way to get into me. I know I need to let her know more often how much I love her. I need to be the one to reach out and let her know that the door is unlocked and that she's always welcome to come inside. That was Marisol Chavez. Next, Sari Beliak goes on an edible adventure in When Bears Attack. I got my medical marijuana card in May of 2016 while on a visit to Los Angeles. Thank you. When the nice doctor asked why I needed the card, I said, when I get my period, I get so sad. You have premenstrual dysphoric disorder, she said. Yeah, I agreed. Fifteen minutes and forty dollars later, I left the clinic that resembled a porn director's interpretation of a doctor's office and visited my first marijuana dispensary. I made the mistake of pretending I knew what the bud tender was talking about, nodding along and trying to play it cool as he showed me rows of glass cases filled with joints, candies, and oils, pointing out different strains and what type of high they produce. I made a few wildly uninformed purchases based off of his suggestions and was given a free edible gummy bear for my first visit. I left the dispensary and drove to Venice Beach to enjoy the beautiful sunny day. Drinking an iced coffee, toes in the sand, chatting with friends on the phone, I was having the perfect morning. Maybe an hour had passed before I reached in my backpack for my journal, because I'm a very serious writer, and discovered the edible that I had been gifted from the dispenser, dispensary earlier. I was already having a great day, and this would surely only make it better. Besides, how strong could this tiny edible gummy bear be? I thought as I casually tossed the edible in my mouth. I would learn to regret my mistake in doubting the powers of this tiny bear over the course of the next nine long hours. Now I want to recognize that stories whose main takeaway is I was so high are tired and cliched and I appreciate you making an exception to suspend your sense of disbelief for your protagonist who is fairly nervous, neurotic and Jewy, <laughs> whose superpower would be ruminating, who, who always seems to know the answer to the questions, hey, what's the worst thing that could happen? And now, an inexperienced drug user who just casually threw back a highly potent marijuana edible. But we're not there yet. We're still having a perfect morning on the beach, long hair flowing in the salty air. We're journaling, we're drinking iced coffee, we're reflecting on our life's purpose, we're white girling super hard. <laughs> Maybe 30 minutes later, my heart began to pound at an unrecognizable rhythm I had no idea it could keep, and honestly probably shouldn't be able to. 
Just as I thought my heart might burst from my non-sunscreened chest, I was overcome by the sudden desire, no, urgent and desperate need, to write my every single thought in my journal. <laughs> my hand put in its best efforts to keep up with the constant barrage of questions, keeping time with my furiously beating heart. Thoughts like, how many pairs of sunglasses have I owned in my lifetime? Why don't they have Shazam for faces? And a more panicked and pressing question as I began my 17th page of writing since being mauled by this edible gummy bear six minutes ago, how long am I going to be this high? By this point, I had been on the beach for nearly three hours without water, sunscreen, or shelter during the hottest and sunniest part of the day. I could feel that my calves exposed from my capris were already sunburnt, and a perfectly rational thought occurred to me that if I didn't collect myself and get off the beach, I could die out there. I somehow made my way back to the car where I sat and reflected for a long time of ways to try and be less high. This was not my area of expertise, but I knew that when you're drunk and you don't want to be, you eat food and drink water. So I began shoveling Chex Mix into my mouth as if I were trying to beat the high score in a snack-eating video game. But this only made me feel more high. I tried chugging water, thinking maybe I could flush the small yet evil bear out of my system. But after frantically chugging a gallon of water, I really had to pee. It was like being trapped in my own drug-induced nightmare version of if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> I got out of my car and approached a nearby establishment, thinking maybe they would let me use their restroom. I tried to open the door to the large white building, but it was locked. A woman going home from her long day's work saw me struggling with the door and asked if she could help me. The large building, she told me, was a church. In an instant, I was able to speak louder than my frantically pounding heart and pull myself together to deliver a perfectly calm and poised, I was on the beach and I ran out of water and if I could just use your restroom really quick, I'm so sorry. And for whatever reason, this woman opened the gate and unlocked the door to the church and led me down the hallway to a preschool classroom where the bathroom was. In the bathroom stall, I hovered all six feet of me over this tiny, to tiny toilet, a potty, if you will, <laughs> and began pep-talking myself. Sarah, you just need to get this out of your system and you'll feel better. Once you pee, you'll feel better. You're not gonna be high forever, it just feels that way now, but you really need to get this, you just need to pee right now. It then occurred to me that I'd been saying these things out loud to myself, for the last several minutes, and the nice lady waiting outside heard my entire pep talk. I thanked her profusely and walked back to my car, seemingly getting higher with every step I took. My thoughts spun in a wild, panicked carousel. I'm gonna be high forever. I'm gonna die. My parents are gonna make one of those PSA commercials where they hold up my last text message and it just says, help, I'm high as fuck, and my mom And my mom looks disappointed and angry the way she does, and then my sister has to explain to my dad what high AF means, and it's all because I took drugs and I don't want to be high anymore. 
In a lull during this drug-induced panic attack, I gained the, the gift of self-awareness for just long enough to realize that I had been maniacally power-walking along Venice boardwalk, like I was trying to speed-walk away from my thoughts, as if I could somehow outrun the evil, evil bear who was chasing me. I realized how insane I must have looked. So to counter that, I decided to walk very slowly. <laughs> because if violently walking along the boardwalk was calling attention to myself, certainly sauntering in an exaggerated slow motion would help me keep a low profile. It took all of my concentration to maintain this sloth-like pace, when suddenly, amongst the puzzled looks I got from strangers, I locked eyes with a face that I recognized approaching me along the boardwalk. The familiar eyes gazed back at me, kind and warm, and then confused and concerned. As I approached my friend, I couldn't believe my luck to be in this horrible predicament sunburnt, paranoid, high out of my mind, but now a friend was here and I would be okay. It took my brain a moment to register, but suddenly I realized that the face I recognized didn't belong to a friend, but rather to the famous actor Willem Dafoe. <laughs> just out and about, <laughs> enjoying a nice stroll along the beach, probably not violently high and having a panic attack, and certainly not prepared to encounter a six-foot-tall sunburnt woman oscillating between aggressively power-walking and painstakingly tiptoeing through imaginary jello along the boardwalk. His look of confusion and concern grew, understandably. And just as he seemed to open his mouth to say something, I looked Willem Dafoe in the eyes and broke the ice with the esteemed actor by shouting the first thing that came to mind. I am too fucking high for this right now! and immediately cut through an alley, leaving a baffled Willem Dafoe behind on the Venice boardwalk. <laughs> the bizarre sunburned stripes on the back of my legs remained for several weeks and was so unsightly that I required my first spray tan just so I could wear a dress to my best friend's wedding without looking like I was wearing red knee-high socks in the summertime. I stood naked before the esthetician, spritzing me with the orange, strange dye, and I reflected on what had led me to this moment. <laughs> and friends, I'm here to remind you this evening that if you ever start to feel that you are too small to make a difference, just remember that one tiny edible gummy bear can fuck you up for hours. Thank you.
That was Sari Beliak. And this is Joe Barton, balancing hoop dreams and harsh realities in Futurist Sportsman. I'm at a challenging place in my adulthood. I'm developed enough to know that sports don't really matter at all. In a world threatened by global warming and profound political corruption, while being transformed by quantum technological advancement, the Super Bowl, for, for example, is so obviously irrelevant that even having an opinion about who wins is utterly absurd. I know this. I read books. I write plays. I orate essays to people in bars. Companies hire me to create their communication strategies. I'm a thinking person, damn it. But I really wanted the Rams to kick the Patriots' asses. And I don't even follow football, so it's confusing. It's a mess. My partner, Bernie, relieves herself instantly of any potential sports angst by simply switching allegiance to whoever's winning. Even the Dodgers. She has no idea why I object to this. Why do I object to this? I'm a transhumanist. I see us using technology to take charge of our destinies, create abundance, and live unlimited lifespans. Why shouldn't we be subject to the whims of sports? It helps that the suns are so hideously, perpetually incompetent that I can't bear to care. But that's a bit like being a smoker being too depressed to light up, isn't it? Eventually, things will turn around, and then where are you? My oldest brother taught me to play basketball in fifth grade, and I loved everything about it. The sounds alone quickened me. The thump of dribbling, the squeaker, sneaker squeak of cutting, the swish of a made shot. And I loved just as much the movement, the full-court sprint, the change of direction, and the jumping, always the jumping, filling walls, then ceilings all over the house with my fingerprints. I loved the ball itself, its size and heft and subtle texture which spoke to my fingertips in a language that so exquisitely bypassed my brain. I poured my solitude into basketball, even when asthma made my lungs feel like sacks of sand. When I wasn't playing at school, I played at the playground in my D.C. neighborhood. I idolized the lanky high school-aged black kids that played in that smooth style that is D.C. basketball. They didn't think and then move. They played at the speed of spontaneity, out of their minds. I wanted that freedom. A little white kid, I looked like the type who worked tirelessly to develop a pure jump shot, his one ticket to be on the court. But I was at my best on the move, driving to the basket. This consistently surprised the black kids who had their own stereotypes. Plus, who wanted to defend a whirling, wheezing white kid who played as if his very self-worth depended on beating you to the spot? In high school, I finally outgrew asthma and developed physically. By 10th grade, I was winning trophies. I played in a kind of mental bubble, holding my brain at bay so that it would not block me from moving freely through the game. I had my best games when I was sick. The weakness forced me to an extreme focus, which shut out thought entirely, and the points came in a seemingly automatic flow. But one day, the school's athletic director made a point of taking me aside to inform me that I wasn't as good as I thought and that I would never play at the next level. I had dreamed of being great. I may, it may have always been just a fantasy, 
but I had already taken a little boy's vision of being a high school star and birthed it whole out of my heart. So who was to say? I had the love and the legs, and I had no other dream. But his words instantly jarred me out of that reverie. Perhaps I never really believed in myself, or maybe I just didn't understand where belief came from, thinking it originated from others who could be relied upon to accurately inform me of what I could and could not be. But now I know better. I've had brushes with real sports stars. I worked at P.F. Chang's back in the day when it was a hot spot in town, where where Charles Barkley brought Michael Jordan, who walked through the restaurant like a god, as the Saturday night din noticeably lowered, heads turned, the air buzzing with awareness of him. I brought the food to their table once, putting a dish of orange peel chicken in front of Jordan. But the server who'd taken the order had somehow botched it. Jordan didn't want orange peel chicken. The poor girl, of course, apologized profusely and offered to bring him what he'd like. Everything was walk prepared. It would only take moments but he wouldn't let her correct her error and sedately ate nothing while the rest dug in. Asshole. (laughs) I played basketball with Kurt Warner at the YMCA when he was working his way back to the Cardinals from an injury. The first time I saw him, he was reading his leather-bound Bible waiting for his game. Kurt competed hard, sometimes dominating games, but he played clean and fair, more so than some of the regulars. But it doesn't matter who these stars really are. It matters who we are. This came to me recently as I was listening to sports talk radio on the way to a client meeting. I know. What could be dumber than listening to idiots who are so moronic? They not only think and talk about sports all day, they get intense, even self-righteous, about their utterly trivial perspectives on events with no inherent significance in the first place. I'll tell you what could be dumber. It's the desire to call in. (laughs) But they were talking about the freshman phenom at Duke Zion Williamson and comparing him to Charles Barkley and Sean Kemp. No way. He's a young Dominique Wilkins, the human highlight film who played for the Atlanta Hawks in the 80s and early 90s after a sterling career at the University of Georgia. Don't they know anything? I didn't call in. The the freeway traffic was roiling around me like a rodeo, which demanded my focus, considering my unlimited tech-enabled future might be at stake. But it did make me reflect. I mean, what if the Suns, as a reward for their heinousness, got the number one overall draft pick again? What if they drafted Williamson and turned it around and became contenders? Would that make me any more of a human being? Would that advance me in any significant way as a man? I don't know, but the 2001 World Series was pretty sweet. (laughs) But was all the suffering before and after made good by that one season of fulfillment? The whole time I'm asking myself these questions, another part of me, my cerebral cortex perhaps, which is supposed to give humans the ability to evolve and innovate, is trying to make the point that these questions are really irrelevant because it's all joy or suffering by proxy anyway because I'm not actually a player winning or losing on a winning or losing team. I'm just a guy watching. So emotionally, sports is just a simulation, like the Matrix. It's not really happening, not to me. I may be overthinking this. (laughs) 
I get to my appointment and present the communication strategy. The clients get it, they love it, we're good, which is important because this is how I actually earn a living, back to sports. <laughs> Driving home on the radio, they're talking about the very scenario I'd run in my own mind with the Suns tanking so they could draft Williamson. Weird. Is this actual evidence of a simulation in effect? Another thought, maybe the car radio is the trigger. Maybe when we have self-driving cars and I can nap my way to appointments, the future is going to be amazing, people. Maybe then I can beat the sports thing. Alternatively, decades down the road, because I'm still alive and well, maybe I'll look back on this moment and be so evolved, so advanced, not just technologically, but emotionally, spiritually even, that the whole thing will seem like some kindergarten drama I've so far outgrown I can't even grasp now what it was about. Or maybe, just maybe, a millennium from now, I'll have lived long enough to see the sons get their act together <laughs> and build not just a contender but a champion, no, a repeat champion, and it will all have been worth it. That was Joe Barden. And as we begin to close this episode, Sasha Howell tries to close the garage door in, you guessed it, the garage door. I can count on one hand the number of major lies I told my parents when I was younger. I don't mean the little fibs about whether I'd finished my homework or clean my room. I mean the big fat lies, the kind that would have gotten me grounded for life. I've begun to divulge these to my mom and dad over the past few years. They can't ground me now that I'm almost 40. At least I don't think they can. Plus, I have my own child now, and I'm hoping these confessions can somehow absolve me from any future lies she might tell me. At least it's worth a shot. But there's one story I just can't quite share with my parents, as it's bound to tip the scales of a decades-long battle between them over who's the worst driver. It's really a toss-up. My mother has a lead foot and a complete inability to park within the lines. My father's brilliance somehow does not translate to merging onto a highway, and he's a little punchy with the brakes. But for them, the score comes down to one thing. Who has backed into the garage more often than the other? In 1996, when I was 15 years old, my neighbor Katie Fouts came over to hang out while our parents went out for dinner and a movie. We watched TV, and we gossiped about you know, boys, and who was going to make the varsity tennis team. And then at some point, Katie turned to me and said, let's take the car out. Um, Katie, we only have our permits. I know, let's do it anyway. Maybe my 15-year-old brain thought that two permits might equal one driver's license, but I'm pretty sure I agreed because I wanted to seem cool in front of Katie. Then she threw another idea at me. Let's have a beer first. She sounded so confident, which was strange. Neither of us were rule breakers. That's why we got along. Katie and I were both the kids that came after the troublemakers. Our brothers had been partying and boozing it up for years. We were the good girls. This entire plan felt foreign and really, really exciting. I grabbed a beer from the fridge and we split that can of courage, swallowing down any nerves with each swig. I'm ready. I grabbed the keys and got into the baby blue Buick LeSabre parked into the garage. I turned on the ignition, I lowered the gear shift into reverse, and I checked my mirrors, and I realized I had never, not even once, 
backed out of the garage. Anytime my parents said it was my turn to drive, they'd already gotten the car out and pointed it straight ahead to make our S-shaped driveway easier for me to navigate. They should have been a sign for me to stop and to cast this craziness aside. What are you waiting for? Katie barked. Uh, nothing, just making sure the mirrors are set, I lied. I took a breath, took my foot off the brake, and started to back out. Crunch! We froze. I hadn't even made it out of the garage. I put the gear shift into drive and slowly took my foot off the brake again. We inched forward into the parking space, metal on metal, screeching with every move. I shifted into park and we sat there for a minute in total silence. I'm gonna go see what I hit. I took the long way around to the passenger side of the car. Without even looking at the damage, I'd already resigned myself to punishment. I wasn't going to be grounded. I was going to be cast into the dark well of children who disappoint their parents, which for me was worse than death. <laughs> and then I saw it. A dent the size of a giant fruit platter scooped out of the front quarter panel. The baby blue paint scraped away alongside my out-of-state college dreams. <laughs> Katie sat there staring at me through the glass. She didn't move until I started crying and she jumped out to see the wreckage for herself. This is bad. What are you gonna do? I, I don't know. I, I, let's go inside, I can't stare at this any longer. We walked to the door and I hit the bright lighted button to close the garage. Got about halfway down and then shot back up. I figured it was probably the cat running in front of the sensor and hit the button again. This time we watched as the garage door went halfway down and then reversed back up to the fully open position. It wasn't the sensor. Katie and I went to look at the garage door track that used to be straight but was now crunched into a sideways V. My brain immediately switched from flight to fight. I scanned the wooden shelves along the wall for a can of WD-40 and a crowbar and I muscled and lubed that track until I got the garage door to go down. <laughs> Katie bailed and I went straight to my room. We both recognized getting the garage door down was not enough to get me out of trouble. That night I lay in bed, tossing between torment and torture. Do I wake my parents and get it over with? Do I say it first thing in the morning? How much do I tell them? Do I mention I had the beer? I only drank half of it. Do I tell them it was Katie's idea? That was mostly true. I stared at the glow in the dark stars on my ceiling and I whispered a prayer to the God of teenage hopes and dreams. And while he hadn't come through on my request for bigger boobs or Johnny Marinowski's affection, he, he would clearly see how much I needed him now. Please help me. Please. Please help me and I will never lie to them again. I promise. The next day I woke to the usual Sunday morning sounds. My mom was in the kitchen and my dad was puttering around the house before it was time to leave for temple. I'd almost forgotten about the prior night's events until I heard the garage door open and the car start up. What followed was another awful, yet familiar crunch, then the slamming of a door and a string of swear words I don't even dare to repeat this day. I ran down the stairs, almost tackling my father in the process. What happened? I hit the fucking garage door. My mom burst into laughter. Two weeks earlier, she'd done the same thing with her car, so this, this crash put them even. It was not funny to my father. I don't even know how there could be so much damage. 
We all went outside to look at the car. The dent was even worse than the night before. Oh, and the fucking garage door's broken now, too. I stood there between them, both of their faces bright red. My mom's from laughter, my dad's from anger. I gave a big smile up to the skies above. And I turned to my parents and asked, do you want me to drive today? That was Sasha Howe. Finally, we have Anwar Newton as he experiences four locos and a funeral in Wake and Bake. Back in 2010, I used to be in Arizona's film industry. I'm not anymore, but I used to be. Part of the reason was because it was dying pretty quickly and people were moving to greener pastures. Another reason is because some of the people in it were so bizarre, desperate, and narcissistical that they would quickly turn a somber memorial for the recently deceased into a drug-fueled party at a hotel in Scottsdale. When I was part of the AZ film industry, I only knew a few people from working together, two of them being my friends to this day, Portillo and Sesh. We seemed to be the only people without rose-colored glasses about being big Hollywood talent, so we stuck close to each other. This was really just a job for us, which made other people in the film sets we worked on coworkers people we kind of knew. One of those people being Khalil. I was friendly with Khalil because he was one of two black people that worked on the scene, me being the other. <laughs> he also was the only dude I knew in Phoenix at the time who sold weed, so I'd often say hello to him from the back seat of a car where the driver was re-upping from Khalil. But I wasn't extremely close with him, which made news of his sudden passing a bit surprising because I never got to really know the guy. Yet here we were, Portillo Session myself, in a crowded hotel bar area at the A-Loft Hotel in Scottsdale, surrounded by Khalil's real friends for what was essentially a very public wake. Around this time in 2010, a massive earthquake had devastated the island of Haiti. You guys all remember mass loss of life, obliteration to the country's already shambling infrastructure. Pretty much the only thing everyone was talking about outside of Khalil's passing. The earthquake in Haiti, so sad. A guest checking at the hotel said in small talk to the desk worker as the three of us passed heading into the bar area near the lobby. Khalil's celebration of life began with Khalil's closest friend, who was also a producer, sharing various anecdotal memories about his fallen buddy and then hammering into our heads that we all should be very thankful to have ever known Khalil. Feeling called out, my eyes began canvassing the bar area, surveying the rest of the people I sort of knew. Stopping only to take in the people I definitely never met. Along the wall were about five or six women. Some had children, which I learned were Khalil's children, and others were what we assumed his romantic interests that were just learning that he even had children. <laughs> Do you think they know that they were all fucking the same guy? Joked Portillo. I fired back a look at him that said clear, clearly for him to shut the fuck up. The three of us were extremely out of place in this setting. We had to be the only three that not only didn't know Khalil on a level that warranted attendance to this event, but we were also the only people wearing screen t-shirts. 
We stood shoulder to shoulder in the back of the room, looking even more out of place. This was Sesha's idea to come, one I'm certain she was regretting at this very moment. I got us a couple of drinks at the bar. Khalil's friend finished his galvanizing speech and then opened the floor for others to share kind words about Khalil, and one by one, people held court on why Khalil was important to them. What if I went up there and shared my memory of the one film set I worked on with Khalil? Portillo sarcastically threatened. I shook my head and took a deep gulp of the watery sky vodka in my hand. The way Khalil died was as uncomforting as the presence of people gathering and mourning in the bar area of an upscale hotel on a Saturday evening. Khalil died of a heart attack in county jail on an arrest for a speeding ticket, a heart attack in jail. Was I being overly skeptical of that being true? Sure, but this wasn't the time or place to get all conspiracy theorists about it. After a few tearful testimonials, Khalil's, friends re Khalil's friend retook the floor and aggressively started what were the closing remarks. He poked his chest out and roared for everyone to put one up for Killer Khalil. Give it up for Killer. There'll never be another like him. We're going to show the film we were working on that was going to change the game because Khalil would have wanted this. This is what Khalil would have wanted. And he promptly played the short film that he directed for which Khalil produced what I assume was primarily weed for the crew. <laughs> it was an excruciatingly terrible independent short film. Almost all of the films he worked on were terrible indie films or weird surreal student films or a commercial for a sandwich. Khalil's friend and the crew and actors who worked on the film carried on about how grand the film was, high-fiving each other and making it about themselves, really. Portillo, Sesh, and I shrunk down, trying to become even more invisible than we were hoping we already were. The film concluded, and Khalil's friend began directing everyone to the fourth floor of the hotel for the rest of the festivities. Well, because they had bought out the entire fourth floor, because this is what Khalil would have wanted. We should at least go get high if we're going to be here for this, suggested Sesh. We agree, make our way to the, to the elevator bank, and cram into an elevator with a couple other guests. One of the elevator people notices us from the bar funeral. Damn, sure going to miss Khalil, right? Yeah, 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 sure going to miss him, remarks Sesh as she quickly locked eyes with both me and Portillo. We swiftly divert our eyes to the floor. What the fuck were we doing here? We s why were we going to get high in a hotel with people we rarely spoke with when Khalil was alive? Why is there a hotel party for Khalil dying? Did they buy out the entire fourth floor for people to cry in their own hotel rooms? Why couldn't this be held in a private place with any semblance of reverence for the man instead of with whoever pulled focus on a camera or held a boom mic on a Khalil production? Did he not have any real friends? Did any of us have real friends? On the fourth floor, several other guests were darting in and out of rooms and hanging out in the hallways. Some of them we knew a little better than we knew Khalil, from film sets, of course. We gather in a room, the doors quickly closed behind us so everyone could smoke and drink. Mind you, this was before vape pens. A careless move on everyone's part. We pass a blunt around, pockets of conversation buzz through the room, Sesh decides to go back down to the bar area to get a breath of fresh air. An hour passes before I ask someone in the room, hey, what's that canned stuff everyone is drinking? What, you never had four loco? 
They responded, I had not. I stand up in a weed haze to leave the room to find Sesh. A towering boulder of a man with an accent shovels outside the door of the hotel room trying to get inside. Not enough room. Another reveler asks where he was from. He responds that he's from Haiti. The reveler follows up with, oh, cool. How is it there? To the shock of anyone in earshot. The Haitian man angrily fires back, are you serious? It's a fucking nightmare. People are dying. I, never ha I haven't heard from my friends in days. Don't you watch the news? And the Haitian man's voice faded away as I beelined away from the fiasco down the hall of the hotel. Four loco cans littered the hallway. Faint traces of the smell of weed floated about. A few people knocked on the closed door of one room only to be greeted by Khalil's friend from earlier, completely nude and inebriated. A woman in the room quickly covered herself in a sheet and ran to the door to close it. I find my friend Portillo and tell him, we got to get out of here. We descend into the elevator back to the hotel bar area and find Sesh with a man who says to her as we walk up, I have some cocaine in my room if you want to come up. Sesh looks over to Portillo and with a look on her face that screams, we got to get out of here, we decide to do just that. At that very moment, we look over to the hotel lobby doors and a SWAT team shows up in full crisis gear. Bulletproof vests, riot helmets, and 12-gauge shotguns marching towards the elevator bank. I notice that they have pressed the floor number where the party is taking place. Holy shit, we got to get out of here, Portillo says. And we power walk out of the hotel to the car, pile in, and then fire the engine up. A couple of left turns puts us in the road back to the safety of our home. Did you guys hear that old guy ask me if I wanted to do blow? Sesh questions. We were all stoned and slightly paranoid. Khalil wouldn't have it any other way, Portillo says. <laughs> After laughing and then sitting in a weed-induced silence, we then realized that Portillo had been driving the wrong direction for five miles. That was Anwar Newton. And that's it for this episode of Barflies. Special thanks to my co-curator, Amy Silverman, podcast producer, Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. For more information, including upcoming workshops and shows, visit barflies.org.